Hello, Open Your Hymnal listeners. In this episode, we make mention of the Music Ministry Alive program. Since our recording, it was announced that MMA will not be continuing a summer institute as it has in the past. As alumni of the program and members of the teaching team, Zach and I are both grieving this loss and giving thanks for the great gift that MMA has been to the both of us. Matt and I, along with our colleague Jess Garceau, are currently working with St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota, and the National Association of Pastoral Musicians to develop a program to continue to serve young music ministers and adult leaders. So stay tuned for more details. We know that many of our listenership have experienced the program Music Ministry Alive. As we celebrate all that Music Ministry Alive has accomplished, we want to invite all the alumni and those who have been involved to share your memories and ways MMA has impacted you on the Open Your Hymnal Facebook page. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Tony Alonzo. Zach, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation because I'm a fan of Tony Alonzo's liturgical compositions. And also because, as you'll hear, something really important to Tony's journey as a composer is a summer program called Music Ministry Alive. And that program also plays a really important role in both of our lives as well. Yeah, not just our lives, but uh, the creation of this podcast um, in general, because Music Ministry Alive is the place where uh, Matt and I met some 17 years ago. Way back in the dark ages of the early (laughs) 2000s, when we were both awkward high school students, our paths first crossed. Podcast didn't even exist back then. Yeah, who who would have thought? Low these many years. I think it was called radio back then. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think all the songs we talk about were on cassette tape back then. <laughs> That's true. And uh, for those of you who've listened to earlier episodes of the podcast, this would have been right about the time that I was writing songs that had already been written, yet thinking that they were my own creations. We all knew, but. We loved you, so we, <laughs> we let you carry on. I'm forever indebted to that kindness. So for those of you who don't know, um, I know a lot of our lis- listenership uh, has been involved with Music Ministry Alive, but for those of you who haven't, Music Ministry Alive is a summer institute uh, for young uh, music ministers and adult leaders, uh, and it's uh, just recently celebrated its 19th year. And one of the things that I appreciate about Music Ministry Alive, and I think we'll hear coming out as a as a sub-theme of this episode, is the focus on engaging and empowering young people in the church. And it's that engagement and mentorship that has made a big difference in my life and in your life. Um, certainly it's played a big role in Tony Alonzo's life, as we'll hear, and 2,500 alums. And it's a great model for any adults who are working in ministry today. I know for me, I had never entertained the idea that I could be a director of music or liturgy at a parish until I had attended Music Ministry Alive. Um, And when I had my first job in ministry, I just, I, I could feel a lot of the mentorship that I experienced at Music Ministry Alive flowing through me in those those early years and 
Now Matt and I both serve as faculty and uh, leadership team members for this program. And I think I speak on behalf of all of us who work with the program that we are all so proud of the example of Tony Alonzo, who was a youth participant, as you'll hear um, in a few minutes, and has been a team member and a great supporter of the work of Music Ministry Alive. So please open your hymnal to what you have done for me. I am the hungry, I am the poor. Hi, I'm Tony Alonzo. I teach at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University, and I'm a composer of liturgical music. So when you feed the hungry, when you clothe the poor. Yeah, so What You Have Done For Me was one of the very first liturgical songs I ever wrote. And I wrote it because I was applying to a camp that David Haas was putting together in 1999 called Music Ministry Alive. And of the options of the different tracks that David had put together, I had done a lot of singing. I was a voice major in college at Northwestern, and I thought I wanted to do something that kind of challenged me. So I thought I'd sign up for the composition track. And in order to sign up for it, you needed to send in two compositions, which was a problem because I hadn't really written any compositions before. And so um, I started playing with different things. I was working as a church musician while I was in college. And I wanted to think about something that maybe a scriptural text that hadn't been overly set. So I think one of the things that I wrote was a psalm setting of something like Psalm 30. And the other was this setting of a scriptural passage that to me was very meaningful, Matthew 25. And so that was the genesis of the song, was just simply an assignment that I could bring to this camp. And when I showed up, expecting to be in a, a course with 10 or 20 people, there was only one other person who signed up. And that was my friend uh, and now colleague and friend, Mike Mahler. And we spent the week uh, woodshedding our music, going through it with our teacher, who was Bobby Fisher, the liturgical guitarist extraordinaire. And that was the, the, the first kind of birth of this song. It, it didn't really um, come into to being in its full incarnation until later in that week. But that's how it started. That's, those were the seeds of its birth. One of the cool things that happened that week is that uh, both Michael Mahler and I were working on our songs, and at some point during the week, Bobby said to David Haas, you have to hear these songs that, that Tony and Michael are writing. So we went into a practice room at St. Kate's and played David our songs, and he said, oh my gosh, we have to feature these at the concert that we're doing at the end of the week which was kind of a cool thing because all of the music had been chosen for that concert well in advance of our gathering. So he kind of worked them in. And over the course of the week, we had an opportunity to play our, you know, nascent liturgical compositions for the likes of Marty Haugen, uh, Mike Jonkis. And this is the first time I'm meeting these people and playing them one of my first compositions. So luckily when you're young, you're kind of 
uh, too young to be totally afraid to play your songs for these people. And so I was, you know, having these incredible opportunities to interact with people whose music I had been singing my whole life. And then at the concert at the end of the week, we were able to sing it with like an 80 voice choir um, in front of an audience of like three or 400 people. And so it gave it just some initial exposure that really began the journey to, to seeing it published within a couple years. I think Tony underscores a really important point, and that is how important uh, mentorship is in this field, and probably, I mean, really in in any field. Um, I know for me, um, having also experienced uh, the composer's track at Music Ministry Alive, um, having that time with people who have really reached um, amazing heights in this field is something that I could, you know, never have hoped uh, to experience otherwise. Um, In my time, I got to work, actually, Tony was one of my great mentors early on. Um, I also got to work with uh, David Haas and Marty Haugen and Tom Kenzia uh, and Paul Tate and Ricky Manalo. Um, And, you know, that kind of mentorship is something that really shapes how you write and forms your work as a composer. It's so funny when you're young and you're, you're too, you don't know enough to know what not to do. You don't know enough to be afraid um, in some ways. And that can be an energizing thing because you have such uh, enthusiasm for what you're doing. It's like discovering a new hobby in a way um, or a new, I don't know, just something that you fall in love with. So you have all this energy for it and you're willing to just give everything over to it with kind of an abandon that I think in my experience, only happens when you're kind of young and trying something for the first time. And so I don't remember a lot of writer's block. I remember being extremely excited because I remember in high school, I always thought writing a song was like a huge, mysterious thing to me. I thought the thought of coming up with something out of nothing, or in my mind, out of nothing, was just a mysterious mysterious process to me. So when I start, started finding that it was not so mysterious, it was something that I could do um, and that there were actual, some, actually some rules governing it and some principles that might inform how I do it, I just wanted to learn more. And so after that week, that first week of, of writing that song and a couple others, I wrote and wrote and wrote. And one of the graces of that was David Haas and Marty Haugen invited Michael and I to spend an entire day with them a couple months later playing for them songs that we had written. And they just spent time giving us critique and feedback and thoughts about their own compositional process that really just, I mean, to have people of that stature, you know, when you're 19 years old, telling you, you can do this, you should do this, was incredibly affirming and just life-giving. At that first meeting uh, with Marty and David after that initial time at Music Ministry Alive, I remember bringing a few songs. Um, the one that jumps to my mind is a, the only one that, that I can remember that was later published was a communion song called Come to the Table, which was also on my first collection of liturgical music. Um, and there were surely others, but 
I remember leaving that meeting thinking, wow, you have a lot to learn. And um, still being very enthusiastic, but more deliberative about what I was doing than just sitting down at a piano and writing whatever came. Um, I, I really appreciated how seriously Marty and David took their vocation as liturgical composers, that it wasn't just about feeling inspired for your own sake, which is a fine way to write music. There's nothing wrong with it. But I came to realize, um, much like any liturgical ministry, whether it's preaching or cantering or being a pastoral musician in any form, um, it's a different approach than if you're just doing something for yourself. And I realized that very on in the kind of comments they were making about the music that we were writing, that that was informing what they had done all of these years. And so um, I grew from that and learned from it, and it made me uh, more discerning. In the last two episodes that we've published, our interviews with both Carrie Landry and Dan Schutte, we spent a lot of time talking about how at the beginnings of what some call contemporary liturgical music right after Vatican II, the emphasis on text, especially scriptural text, was so important in the life of the church because that's how so many Catholics learned scripture, by singing the settings of scripture um, that the St. Louis Jesuits wrote or that Carrie Landry wrote. And so it was interesting to me to hear Tony, now a second, third generation of composers removed from that, to talk about his approach to setting scripture and the awareness of the fact that as a composer setting scripture, knowing you're teaching the congregation scripture, you really have to be careful about how you might tinker with that text. You know, one thing someone said to me early on when it was published is uh, about the change in the text, which in Matthew 25, it says, what you have done for the least of my brothers you have done for me. And I changed it to what you have done for the least of my children. And to be quite honest, my intention behind it was to make it inclusive. But this friend of mine said, ah, Tony, but you made it easier. It's easier to love children than it is to love your brother. And I thought that was a really wise critique. Um, Just one, one word, of course, the inclusive language problem remains with brother. But I wonder if there would be a better solution to that, that change that kind of softens the, the difficulty of the kind of love we're called to, to show. That when we, when we talk about children, it's a lot easier for our hearts to feel warm toward them than maybe uh, a sister or brother who has harmed us or a sister or a brother who is in, as in Matthew 25, the poor and the hungry and the homeless. I don't think I'd given a lot of thought to the authority that a composer has over scripture when they set it to music, especially if they edit any of the words. And of course, I'm under no illusion that scripture comes to us in some pure platonic form untouched by translators and so forth. But nevertheless, um, when we make changes to texts, that's that's a significant exercise of authority. And it's one that um, when I wrote that song, I hadn't given a lot of thought to. Um, I think when I wrote What You Have Done For Me, I very much wanted to get into the intimacy of the text, uh, and I think that is present in that song. 
But the more I've grown as a composer, I am much less reluctant to edit texts, uh, especially things like psalms. I think we've been a little fast and loose about leaving out lines that we just don't like or that make us uncomfortable for one reason or another, or uh, for even less intentional reasons, like it doesn't fit the melody we came up with, right? There are all these things happening when you go to write a song, and you're really, um, you know, all of our colleagues talk about how formative words set to music really are. They anchor music in us in a way that the text alone does not. And so I take that responsibility very seriously. And if I'm going to make a change to a scriptural text for the sake of a melody um, or for the sake of some particular emphasis, I really have a, in my mind at least, it has to reach a much higher bar to make that change than I think it had in, in other past moments in my life. So I take the work of discerning scripture much more seriously now. One of the things that really intrigues me about our conversation with these composers is kind of getting a sense for uh, their progression as far as their approach to text and writing music. Um, you know, just for example, I you know, one thing that fascinates me is like how the Beatles of I Want to Hold Your Hand become the Beatles of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And I think, you know, um, that kind of progression um, is something that's really interesting to to take note of. And I was particularly interested in discussing this uh, with Tony, because Tony, um, admittedly, uh, being influenced by, you know, the sounds of, um, like, David Haas, Marty Haugen, Michael Jankis, um I was curious to ask him about how he went about finding his own compositional voice and to use kind of the same analogy, I was for for my own sake. I was I was curious of how the Tony Alonzo of what you have done for me would become uh, the Tony Alonzo of In the Arms of God or A House of Prayer. The first collection that I felt like I was beginning to find my own voice is a collection called Table of the World. And I think it's because it's just a mishmash of things born of my pastoral work. So there are real practical songs in there um, that have found a home in a lot of communities just because I wrote them out of needs of my own. I think of things like Litany of Mary that just incorporates the simple refrain from the Lourdes hymn and a, a, several other bilingual pieces. Another simple Alleluia called Alleluia Song of the Spirit is on that collection. Um, so that was kind of the first collection where I felt myself beginning to forge a voice in kind of a fragmented way. Uh, and then I think after that, I did a collection with Marty Haugen and Michael Jonkis, which was very intimidating for me. And it's interesting because I think especially because I was doing it with people who had been so influential on me, I really wanted to be intentional to not sound like them. <laughs> uh, so there are some songs on that collection, like In the Arms of God, uh, that I think are first examples of, of me kind of finding my own compositional voice. But I, I wouldn't say I really felt like I found it more confidently until a collection only of a few years ago called A House of Prayer. And I think there are several songs on that collection um, 
where I feel like, yeah, that's me. That's what I want to say and what I want to contribute in a way that I haven't always felt uh, in past compositions. One of the most compelling parts of our conversation with Tony, at least in my mind, was hearing him talk about the time period, both in terms of his life and the publishing landscape, of when he waded into this field and began writing. And it was compelling to me both to hear him talk about breaking into the industry, but also to reflect upon how compositions, when they're written, when they're copyrighted, have a piece of that time period wrapped up in them. A song written in the late 80s reflects the church of the late 80s. A song written in the late 90s reflects the church of the late 90s, how we were thinking and what we had in the front of our minds ministerially and in terms of our communities. And I appreciated Tony's challenge of singing songs from different time periods, but always remembering that we're singing them today and in the church today. And what parts of these songs are speaking to us now for what we need to hear now? What part of these songs are stamped or marked from the time period when they came from? And the considerations, especially for music directors, um, that need to be taken to balance both of those realities. I do think that a lot of the music that's been written in the last 50 years bears uh, marks of its time in profound ways that both the people who have written it and the people who kind of grew up with it, choosing it for their churches, can't even see, that we can't even see, no matter how distant we are from it, because we're a part of this time as well. But I hear certain phrases and certain theologies coming out. And I, I've always wanted to write a book about all of this music that has sprung out, sprung up in the last 50 years, but I almost feel like it, that can't be written for another 100 years <laughs> until we've had some distance from it. But I will admit to you, I do worry a little bit about how uh, narrow the repertoire is in many churches uh, in terms of church history. So when I go to a liturgy, and everything was written between 1988 and 1996. Those were great years. But did they exhaust all of church history? And when we only sing uh, songs from a narrow period, I think we're really getting a narrow theology. Just like if we only sang songs from the 16th century, we would be getting a taste of the cultural waters and the theological waters in which people sang then. So I become more intentional not just about diversity of composers or styles, but making sure that diversity of, of eras are present as well. Um, we are much newer at this than our Protestant sisters and brothers singing and praying in vernacular languages. And so we've had to kind of rush to create a repertoire. But I've been very interested in looking at um, the music of other cultures, the music of other eras, to think about how we can um, create a more diverse repertoire. Because if everything we sing is from such a narrow period, I don't think we have the full breadth of what it means to, as to, to quote one of my professors at Emory, to offer our praise and lament at full stretch before God. As has been noted, the scriptural basis for the text of this piece is deeply rooted in 
social justice. And especially in these challenging and divisive times, both here in the United States, of course, but all over the world, um, when we are fiercely debating um, how do we treat or interact with the poor, um, how do we interact with those who are marginalized, how do we combat that marginalization, um, this, this text, Matthew 25, is so important. And so we spoke with Tony about what role this song has or how it speaks to us in, in these really difficult moments. And here's what he had to say. I've been reading a lot uh, the writings of Pope Francis in the last few months, actually in preparation for another project that I've been working on. And I've been struck by how frequently he uses a couple words. One is encounter, and the other is gaze, G-A-Z-E, the gaze of Jesus upon us the gaze of us toward our sister or our brother, the poor. And these two words hold such significance for me when I think about our work as, not just as composers, but just ministers in general in the world. Francis calls the church a field hospital after battle. And that's really seared on my heart. Um, It's really kind of relativized a lot of the battles that I've um, participated in about liturgy and music and just thought, yeah, Francis, before we uh, check for high cholesterol, we need to tend to people's wounds. And I think music making is an extraordinarily powerful way in which we as ministers can be a part of healing those wounds. Now we can overstate it and think that music solves everything. Um, But we can also miss the fact that we encounter so many people in our ministry, especially as musicians. We encounter people sometimes at the most wounded times in their lives, when they've lost a son or a mother or a sibling or a friend. And so I have been thinking quite a lot about the role of music in healing wounds. And I take that uh, very seriously. And now, here's a recording of What You Have Done For Me in its entirety. Prepare for 
Thank you for listening to the Open Your Hymnal podcast. What You Have Done For Me is published by GIA Publications. The recording you heard was released by GIA Publications on the album In Endless Song. Links to this material and other resources can be found at our website, openyourhymnal.com. We'd like to specially thank Tony Alonzo for this interview. Production assistance and support was provided by GIA Publications. This episode was made possible through the generous support of Stephen Petronak and the National Association of Pastoral Musicians. You can find important digital resources for music ministry at NPM's website, www.npm.org. If you aren't a member yet, sign up today. Be sure to follow Open Your Hymnal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you haven't yet, you can subscribe to this podcast through iTunes and through Google Play. Our next episode will feature an interview with composer Jesse Manabusan and his song, Open My Eyes. You know, I let them know that I, I struggle every day to be a disciple, to be faithful. When I heard that Mother Teresa had letters with doubts, oh my gosh, that was an amazing moment. When, Saint, when, when Pope Francis says stuff about mercy and compassion, it saves my life. Because I need mercy and I need compassion. And the best way to get it is by being merciful and compassionate. Oh, my heart, help me to love For Open Your Hymnal, I'm Zach Stahowski. And I'm Matt Reichert. Thanks for listening.
Make church music great again.